As you, uh, as you, most of you or some of you were here last week, um, you heard Steve kind of talk about uh, that we kind of recognize that God has us in a unique season um, as a church and as a staff. We've begun talking about it and praying through it. And, you know, we're really labeling it a, um, a desert. And that may sound very depressing, but as you'll hear as we kind of get into this, it's not at all. One of the things that Steve talked about, too, let's get this straight, is that he talked about his grandfather being this superhero-like person in his life. And I think great-grandfathers are, right? You know, and his grandfather was so strong, he could help him push over trees, you know. And remember this, and Steve would go out and he would rock these kind of old dead trees. If you've never done that, it's a lot of fun. Just don't let the top fall off and hit you, you know, if you start rocking it. But, you know, then his grandfather would come push over some that weren't quite ready, that he couldn't do on his own. He was really strong, right? Well, my grandfather was pretty strong, too. See, um, I was about five years old and I was staying with my grandparents and, um, you know, we went to visit my grandparents. And I was in the bathroom brushing my teeth before I went to bed one night and, and my mom walked by and I had my hand in my mouth and I was and she said, Scott, what are you doing? And I said, I look forward to the day when I'm big enough and strong enough like pops that I can pull my teeth out at night, too. <laughs> See, my grandfather was so strong, he could pull his teeth out. And he did it every night before he went to bed and he put them in a little glass jar. And so I was sitting there looking at him in the jar thinking, man, he is strong. <laughs> and so my grandfather could beat up Steve's grandfather. Just get that straight. Um, isn't it great to have superheroes, right? Well, we're going to dive in this morning. We're going to look at, you know, we're going to look at the nation of Israel as they entered into a desert, right? And we've talked about last week, Steve mentioned there are a couple different types of deserts. You know, there's a desert, it's a sin, you know, where there's this dry place, there's this place where you've been a part of sin and there's this separation between you and God. But then there are deserts that are God-induced deserts, deserts that God is inviting us into. For Jesus, he, you know, it, we see in Luke 4 that he was invited into the wilderness, right? And he went out and he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness. He was tempted, you know, by Satan in the wilderness. And we see in this amazing story called Exodus how God called his people, this nation of Israel, out of Egypt toward the promised land, and he led them into the desert. Right. So imagine this. That Here's the reality that the people of Israel. Right. It started with Abraham. Right. Being given this promise that he would have all these descendants. And and then it you know carries on down. And then you get, you know, these guys that there are 12 brothers. And the youngest one had this coat of many colors. His name was Joseph. And he got his brothers really jealous of him. So they sold him into slavery. And you know where he went. He went to Egypt. Right. And then he spent a lot of time in jail there, not for having done anything, but for being accused of doing some stuff. And then, long story short, Pharaoh has this dream nobody can interpret. And Joseph interprets this dream and gets made the second highest rule in all of Egypt behind Pharaoh. And so he takes over the governments of the country. And through his time there, they go through a drought. And so his brothers from this promised land area come to Egypt and they all move down to Egypt. So... This tribe of folks, this family moves from where they were in this promised land to Egypt. And who knows, there may have been 60 or 100 of them moved down, right? And some close to 400 years goes by, and we find that 
Now they have become this mighty nation. And they are they've been made, but they've been made slaves to the Egyptians and they're doing all this hard manual labor work. They're crying out to the Lord to rescue them. And finally, the Lord calls Moses to go to Pharaoh to say, let my people go. You're all familiar with the story, right? Let my people go. And then Pharaoh says, no way, I'm not letting your people go. And so then the Lord sends these 10 plagues, right? There's frogs and and monkeys and giraffes and. Right. No, nobody's listening. OK, so there's frogs, you know, there's hail, there's, you know, the, the the river turns to blood, you know, all these crazy things happen. Right. And then the last one is, you know, the the oldest son in the house dies and, you know, Pharaoh's finally like, OK, you can go. So the people leave. And from our estimates, you know, it, it appears that there were some two to three million Israelites that left. So they came into the land a family and they leave the land a nation. And nowhere else in history had we ever seen anything like this before, that a nation was drawn out of another nation. But here we have this amazing God that's doing amazing things that nobody's ever heard of before. And he's not just drawing them out of this nation. He leads them very clearly like there was this cloud of fire by night. Like he's making it absolutely miraculously clear who he is and how powerful he is. And he's reintroducing himself to this family that had become a nation of who they worship and who he is and how powerful he is and what he's all about. Right. He's given them this promised land, this land flowing with milk and honey. And so he's leading them out of Egypt back to the land that he had promised their ancestors And they're excited about this, but there's one little problem. There's a desert between Egypt and Israel that they have to cross. But this is a beautiful thing. This is a beautiful thing for you and me today. Because when God calls and leads his people into a desert, great things happen. So now what we what we find ourselves seeing, and if you read Exodus, you'll see this in chapter 15, 16, 17. The people had just come out. The nation had just come out of Egypt and they've just crossed over the river. Right. And the Pharaoh's armies had just been, you know, swept up in the in the waters and killed. And so the the nation of Israel stands on the far bank of of the river and sings this song. In Exodus sings the songs about how great God is and what all he's done for them. Right. They are just amazed at how great this God is and what he's doing. Right. And all the world is starting to hear these rumors of the this God of Israel. Right. And it's amazing. And it only takes a couple days that they go from this place of amazing worship and being in view of who this amazing God is to getting thirsty. So at this point in the story, you kind of have to identify with them to understand. And this is really the best way to read scripture is that when you open the word, imagine yourself being one of the characters in the story. And you'll see how many great things that are actually being said that you might miss otherwise. So imagine that we're a band of brothers. We've just been called out of slavery. This is an amazing thing. Look at how powerful our God is. And we've just walked. My goodness. We just crossed a river with walls of water on each side and we were walking on dry land. I mean, is that not enough to like want to tell your great, great, great grandchildren about? This is an amazing, powerful God. And here I am walking. And then 
the army comes and the walls of water fall down and they're dead, right? What an amazing God. But now I'm thirsty. Now we're thirsty. What are we doing? We're thirsty. We're in a desert for heaven's sakes. There are two or three million of us. What do we do now? Well, if you're anything like me, you start to do the very same thing that this nation of Israel did. They started to grumble and complain. They started to grumble and complain. And they came to Moses, the leader, and they started grumbling and complaining at Moses, right? That's what you do. You turn to the leader and you get upset and you tell him, look, this is not going the way we planned. We were thinking promised land, milk and honey. And here we are in a desert and we're thirsty. Give us some water. There are a couple million of us, for heaven's sakes. Give us a lot of water, right? But they don't know what to do. When I was um, preparing for this sermon this last week, is this amazing reality of what God was, was immediately showing me. I knew that I, I felt like, you know, preaching on the desert. And as I just started to prepare, I just wrote down some notes immediately, you know, in my computer. And the first thing I wrote down, John 10, 10. If you're not familiar with it, John 10, 10 is a verse you probably are familiar with, but it's got some of my. Jesus is speaking. He says the enemy comes to steal, kill and destroy. But I came that you might have life and have it to the full. Jesus saying, I came to give you an abundance of life. But everything that the enemy does in your life is to steal, kill and destroy life away from who you are. Right. Just pause there. A little tangent. When you're in a difficult place, a difficult season, look and see where your mind and where your thoughts are going. Are, are you seeing that things seem like they're being stolen and you're killed and feeling like you're being destroyed? Then recognize, hmm, this probably isn't what God has intended for me. And one of the, the, the first key that I want to dive into is going to help us when we pause in that moment to recognize what we should do. So unpause back to the story. So I'm preparing my notes. Right. And the first thing I get is I write down John 10, 10, that God you know, Jesus said, I came that you might have life to have it to the full. And the next thing I wrote down was God is a God of abundance. Right. And I was telling my wife about this. We just celebrated our 13th anniversary recently and we were out to dinner and I was telling her about what the Lord was showing me about this desert. And she said, I did a Bible study last year that you need to look at. I've got the notes, you know, at home. And uh, so she went home. She found this Bible study that she did by Priscilla Shire. And the name of the Bible study is one. And um, I turned to the first page of, um, of the Bible study. And the very first thing that Priscilla Shaw wrote about, because the, the Bible study is all about the desert, right? So she wanted me to see these notes about the desert. Maybe there's something I can get out of it, right? The first six words in the Bible study were the exact six words in my notes. God is a God of abundance. The next thing in her notes was John 10, 10, right? And at that moment, I had this doo-doo. You know, I got a little chill and I'm like, OK, I think this is what the Lord has me to preach on. So I don't know if y'all get anything out of this or not, but I'm sticking with the desert because the Lord said, look, you know, six words, six words are exactly the same. Right. Here's the reality. God is a God of abundance and it shouldn't matter what circumstance we find ourselves in. His plan is for us to have a life of abundance. And a part of what he has in store for us is to teach us how to find the fullness of joy and abundance, no matter where we are, no matter what we're doing, no matter what comes our way, and no matter what we have to go through. In that place, God is never changing. 
His kingdom is unshakable. Two truths about who God is. He's an unchanging king. And he has an unshakable kingdom. So it doesn't matter what circumstance we find ourselves in. God has in store for us to in that place find abundance in life. So when we find ourselves really wrestling with something other than what could be abundance, abundant. Who probably needs some help? Where does the work need to start to take place? Is, does God need to change or do we need to be shaped and molded and taught into being who he desires for us to be? Right. Hence, because he loves us, he leads us. And because he loves us, he leads us into deserts and they're beautiful places if we recognize them for what they're worth. I mean, we can all enjoy times of enjoyment, all enjoy times of pleasure, all enjoy times of, you know, being rich and fruitful and, you know, things going the best way that they can. But do we and can we find joy and abundance of life when things aren't going our way? Absolutely. And because he loves us, he wants to teach us how to do that so that it's not dependent on the circumstances of the world. Because the reality is, it's depending on him and who he is. So he leads us to deserts. He leads us to places of abundance. And there are four keys that we're going to talk about this week and next week. And the, the first, this first week, we're just going to talk about key one. Key number one in a desert is to recognize what is God doing in this desert. Okay, we know this. God is unchanging and his kingdom is unshakable. And he is always at work to restore and redeem what he created. So we have his creation and we have the fall and we have God's work to redeem and restore what he created back into the order in which he wanted it to be. Right. So you and I have sin in our life, but God has done everything to be able to create a way to restore a relationship back with him by paying a sacrifice. And there are things that he is doing within you and me by the work of his Holy Spirit to whittle and mold and reshape us into the persons that he created us to be. Even before we were born, that he he knows who we are and he knows what he has in store for us. And he created us in a certain way. And through the circumstances of life and through our own pride and will, we've distorted that. We've put on makeup to kind of hide and to reshape or reimagine what we look like. And the Lord, because he is loving, he is always working to shape us back into that original creation, a heart that's pure before him. And in biblical terms, we call this sanctification, right? This work of sanctification that he is working on you and you, you and on me. And so in this case, we find ourselves like a nation, a church. All made up of individuals, but a nation moving into a desert, moving into a place where God is at work. And so our first key is to join God in that work he's doing. In order to join him in the work that he's doing, we have to understand what is it you're doing in the desert? You see, if you're like the Israelites and we go into the desert and we're not looking and asking God, what are you do? Why did you bring us here? What are you doing in us here? Then we'll just grumble and complain. Anybody ever grumbled or complained? Have you made it through the day so far without grumbling, and complaining about something? OK, we all are good at grumbling and complaining when we're grumbling and complaining. You know where that's coming from? Rocket science here from self. 
myself, my little me, Scott, doesn't like something. So what do I do? I complain about it. I, I think I would be a really good God, right? I may not articulate it that way to myself in the moment, but ultimately that's what we're choosing to do is we're trying to say, hmm, hmm, I think I could be a better God in this moment because I wouldn't be going through this or I wouldn't have to endure this or I don't think that should be the case and I think this should be the case. So that person needs to talk to this person and we're really good at playing God in our own lives and kind of seeing how the circumstances should unfold. But because God is God and he is unmovable, unchanging, unshakable, he maintains his role as God. And because he loves us, he invites us away from that throne seat and into deserts where he refines us. And that's what, in large part, a desert is about. It's a place where, you know, when you're hungry and you're thirsty and you're tired. If you're like me, you probably complain because things aren't going the way you want them to do. It's in the desert that the self gets brought to the surface. You with me? So you got two million people wandering out in a hot, thirsty, dry land, and they just came from a place where they at least had enough to eat and plenty to drink. And now all of a sudden they're out in this wilderness alone, not knowing what to do, and they're hungry and dry and they're complaining. God is bringing the self of who they are to the table. Now, God is knows everything, right? There's nothing that God doesn't know. Why do you think he brought them to the desert for that self to be brought to the table? For that to really kind of come out that you can see when we dig into the word. Was it so he could see it so he could know it? No, he already knew it. He brought it out so that they could see it and so they could know it. And so that they could join in to what I'm saying is key number one. God, what are you doing Because when we understand what God's doing, then we can join him in it. Otherwise, we just sit out there and we grumble and complain because we have no idea why we're out here or what we're doing. But let me just tell you, if you want to experience the fullness of life, regardless of whatever circumstance you're in, then you need to begin with starting with learning how to ask the question, God, what are you doing? Show me what you're doing, because when you show me what you're doing now, I know what I can do. But when you don't know what God's doing, you just are lost. And there's nothing but yourself mumbling, grumbling, fumbling, and a bunch of other mumbling, grumbling, fumbling people around you doing the same thing, wondering what the heck are we doing out here? And it's a, not a pretty picture. It's a terrible experience. But if, if you'll ask God, what are you doing? Show me. Now you know how to join God And begin this path toward an abundant life because God is bringing this self to the surface so that we can see it so we can recognize, ooh, I really am a selfish sucker. You know, I really got a bunch of pride in me. I really do complain. And so what we find ourselves doing is worrying. You know, they were worrying about, well, where are we going to get water? We're going to thirst. We're going to die of thirst out here. What are we going to have to eat? We're going to starve to death. We could have at least lived if we stayed in Egypt. So they're worrying about everything. Does anybody in here worry? Anybody? Okay. Did you know that worrying is a sin? You're not supposed to do it. In other words, right? So he's leading them in the desert and he's leading them in the desert because he wants to turn, have their hearts move from worry to worship. From worry to worship. Now, 
Just think about that thing. Steal, kill, and destroy? Abundant life. Which one should you choose? Which one does the enemy want you to choose? Let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy chapter 8, we have uh, uh, some of the reflection back from this story of Exodus. This is Moses' account. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, I'll begin reading verse 1. Be careful to follow every command I'm giving you today so that you may live and increase and you may enter and possess the land that the Lord promised on oath to your forefather. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years to humble you and to test you in order that in order to know what was in your heart. Whether or not you would keep his commands, he humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna with neither uh, with neither you nor your fathers had known to teach you that man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Let me pause there. What are the two things that the Lord says that he's doing here? He led them into the desert to. Humble them and to test them. Hmm. That doesn't sound like a fun place to be. But welcome to life. The Lord is always at work to restore his creation back to what he intended it to be. So he will lead us into times and seasons and really through everything in our life to humble us and to test us to see what is in our heart. Does he know what's in our heart? Yes. So who is he really doing this for? To show us what is in our heart that's not in alignment with him. And when we start to find some victory in this, to show us in our heart what has started to come in alignment with him. To look back on and see the change that he's made in us and how we're becoming faithful. And that's why I call this desert a desert of faithfulness. Because the Lord is ever faithful to us. He is never leaving us nor forsaking us. He will always be there for us. And yet we live life in difficult circumstances, feeling like he's far away. And being convinced by this lie that he's not there. When the reality is he is ever present. And he loves you and he loves me and he's walking with us through whatever we're going through. So in this desert, he is that he is. Testing us and humbling us. Why? Why in the world does he need to test us and humble us? Well, what does it say in the text? To teach us. He's testing us and he's humbling us in order to teach us because his desire and his plan is that things go well with us, that he can bless us. Right. This is like a parent disciplining their child. Right. Because you love them, you discipline them. Just look at Hebrews chapter 12 sometime. It'll, you'll see how the Lord disciplines those he loves. It doesn't feel pleasant at the time. But for those that have been trained by it, it produces a fruit of righteousness and holiness and peace in their life. Hebrews 12. The Lord's doing the same thing. Writer Hebrews just got this straight out of Deuteronomy 8. That the Lord is testing you. He is humbling you because he has something to teach you that is going to be extremely valuable for your life. Then we can taste and know that the Lord is good. We can recognize that he has incredible things in store for us. You know, deserts are rarely ever perceived to be abundant places. But the only thing that's in abundance in the desert is nothingness. 
There's nothing out there. Maybe sand, a few cactus, right? The desert is a place of nothingness. You don't have any of the things, any of the luxuries. They didn't have any of the luxuries that they had in Egypt. And that's one of the complaints they have. Maybe we've got a better plan. Maybe we need to turn around and go back into Egypt. At least there's not an army anymore that could kill us, right? But maybe we need to go back and just start making bricks again and be slaves again. At least there we had food. Only thing in the deserts, nothing. But a God-imposed desert... He leads us to this place of nothingness because the only thing that's there is him. The only thing that's there is him. And because he loves us, he invites us to that place where he and he alone is the answer. So I ask you, you, do you experience the abundance of life that he came to give? Or do we find ourselves disappointed with maybe what the church is about, or maybe disappointed in God, or maybe disappointed that he's not doing things the way we think they should be done. That self can sound like a real justifiable voice if we listen. Maybe God's not really going to meet me in my needs. Maybe, you know, he could be doing things better, right? It's always a voice accusing, right? Ever been in an argument with somebody? There's always that accusation going back and forth. God has a plan in, in this desert season, and in this desert time, to humble us and to test us and to teach us a couple things. To teach us that he is everything. To teach us he's everything. And if he doesn't move, if he doesn't show up, then we're going to die. We're going to die of thirst. Then we're going to die. If we didn't die of thirst, everybody that's left is going to die of hunger. If we don't die of hunger, then the, then the poisonous snakes that, if you kept reading Deuteronomy 8, are out there, are going to bite us and we're all going to die. We are now desperate. God, either you show up or death is at our door, right? Worry or worship. The enemy can sound like this roaring lion that's saying death is at your door. Can you worship? He's leading us to the end of ourselves where he is the only thing there to satisfy And because he loves us, he loves to have that intimacy with us. And so he leads us into deserts. And they're beautiful places. God has a time and a season for everything that he does. Will we get caught up in our dissatisfactions? You know, we're, you know, I'm kind of looking at this from a church perspective. You know, the Lord's leading us into a desert where, man, you know, there are a lot of other things that we could desire and think that, you know, we could be doing as a church or, you know, could be more fruitful in different areas. Right. There are amazing things going on in this church. Right. But here's the reality. God has something that he is preparing us for, because deserts are always times for preparation. We, I am absolutely convinced God is preparing us a church just like he was preparing the nation of Israel for the promised land. He's preparing us for something that he's going to do. I don't have a time frame in which he's going to do it. I just know there's something amazing, an upcoming season where God is going to stir and do something in this congregation that you don't want to miss and that I don't want to miss. I'm excited about what that is. I'm excited that he knows that he is leading us to a different place and he is leading us to this place where we get to see amazing things happen. And, you know, I don't know exactly what it looks like, but I'll tell you a little bit about what it looks like. 
It looks a little bit like that burdens that are on God's heart. He shares with us and they feel like burdens on our hearts. You know, it looks like, you know, maybe that somebody went over to Abney Elementary School and they saw this group of hungry children and they said, you know, these kids are starving. They don't get breakfast. I can. Why don't we start a food pantry? And the next thing you know, we've kind of come to the church. We said, "Okay, we're going to start a food pantry. Who can bring in some food? Next thing you know, we've got a food pantry. Start feeding these hungry kids. And then the amazing things happen is the families hear about what's taking place. And and moms and dads are coming to us with tears in their eyes saying, I know, you know, you don't understand how much this has broken my heart that I have to send my kids to school hungry because I can't provide breakfast. And here you guys come along. What an amazing church. And then they hear about what this amazing church is doing. And then they come and get baptized and they give their life to Christ because what the people of God is stand, stand up to do, because God put a burden that's on his heart on one of your hearts and out of the passion of your heart, you said, I can feed these hungry children. Won't y'all gather around me? Let's start a food pantry and start feeding these kids. And then lives start getting changed. And then the community starts to hear about the Sadakim, the righteous, how the righteous are being involved in the community, how the church is stepping up and getting involved, all because hearts were moved to join God in the burdens of his heart. Now, I'm not saying we go start a food pantry. I'm just saying you need to start getting prepared for whatever God is going to do when he stirs your heart and shares with you out of intimacy the burdens of his heart. You don't want to miss out on seeing that mom come and prayer and, and, and get baptized in this prayerful thing that, that with tears in your eyes, the fullness of joy of what you've seen. All I knew is that God was encouraging me to start a food pantry and I'm overwhelmed to get to to get to participate with him in seeing lives change before my very eyes. You don't want to miss that. That's abundant life. And God has that in store for you. Are you preparing for him? You see, that's what God has in store in the desert. And that's why the desert is a beautiful place. It's a beautiful place because God is at work and it's a beautiful place when we join him in what he is doing. Because then we get to not just grumble and complain. Then we get to look at what the situation is and to recognize the junk in our life and start to join him in casting that stuff aside. And saying, yes, Lord, you're showing me this selfishness. Oh, I don't like it. It's so ugly. I can't believe I'm actually that selfish. But let me join you in what you're doing. Oh, make me aware of the junk in my life. So that I can join you and give it away and get rid of this stuff that keeps stealing, killing and destroying who I've been. Let me join you in this work of your Holy Spirit that is shaping and molding me into this person that you created me to be. Instead of this person that I'm always running to try to become. That's the fullness of life. Deuteronomy chapter 8. Continue reading. I'm going to skip down to verse 16. Moses says, He gave you manna to eat in the desert, something your forefathers never known, to humble and test you, so that in the end it might go well with you. The whole purpose of this, the whole purpose of the testing and the humbling is so that it might go well with you. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced the wealth for me. But remember the Lord, your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your forefathers as it is as it is today. 
If you ever forget the Lord, your God, and follow other gods or worship and bow down to them, I testify against you today that you will surely be destroyed. Moses is given this instruction in recognizing, you know, the Lord is doing this testing. He's doing this thing in the desert so that we don't mess it up when it comes so that we can be the stewards of this blessing, this promised land, this this land flowing with milk and honey. So that when we get there, we don't take pride in the work that we do ourselves and say, look what we did. That's what the desert was about, is the desert ensures within us that this is a work that God does. And so when the work that God does starts to happen through us, we don't take credit for it, but we praise him for it. But we learn that lesson in the desert, not in the land of plenty. We learn that 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 lesson in the desert, not in the land of plenty. And because of that, he leads us into the desert. So that we can worship him. And know the fullness of life instead of having those very blessings become curses that steal, kill, and destroy the very things he wants to bless us with. Because in the desert, it's all about him. There's nothing there but him. And as we find our fullness in him and in him alone, whether good times or bad times, It doesn't matter because our heart has been set and it's been fixed on him and nothing less. Friends, the desert is a beautiful place because our God is a God of abundance and there is nothing in abundance in the desert except God. So will you join him there? Will you embrace the very things that he wants to do in you and in me? To prepare for this thing that he wants to do within our hearts. But I'm telling you, it'll humble you. And it'll test you. But God is faithful. And it is a desert called faithfulness. Because as we enter into it, he will teach us how to be faithful. And in the good times and the bad times, we'll have a fruit produced in our lives in an assurance Of life that is a life of faithfulness before him. It's not about worry anymore. It can be turned into worship. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are a God of everything. That you neither slumber nor sleep. Your hand is ever active before us. Waving. Wooing calling your creation back to you. Lord, forgive us of our selfish pride that doesn't like discomfort, that wants to resist your very calling, that is way too comfortable with Egypt, way too comfortable with the way we know things. But, Lord, I just pray right now by your Holy Spirit, Jesus, won't you well up within each and every one of our hearts a passion that says it doesn't matter. You're everything. Give me more. That says yesterday's bread is not enough for today, Lord. I cry out to you again. Teach me, Lord, that the food that I have has nothing, no value, but that I can feast on who you are. 
Lead us, Lord, to be able to worship you. Teach us how to get rid of this self that keeps stealing and killing and destroying this life that you're giving us. That, 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 that You love us and you want it to be a life of abundance. And so you test us to get this junk out of the way that we can worship instead of worry all the time. But, Lord, this does mean a change. This does mean a, this does mean a transformation. And thank you, Jesus, that... You never intended for us to go through this alone. That in community, we suddenly have other people that understand. We suddenly have this invitation of the New Testament that says to to come alongside and to build up and to edify and encourage one another in the faith. And to begin thinking on good things, on the ways of the kingdom and the ways of your heaven, not on the circumstances of the earth. Thank you, Lord, that you are good and you are mighty and you are powerful. And because you love us so much, you discipline us. So let us let us enter into that room and. And with a smile on our face to say this, I know this might not feel great, but oh, I'm so thankful that you love me enough to bring me to this place. So come, Lord, and do a work in me. Show me. Show me the things in my life that you are still redeeming. And so I can just say yes and amen. Dig into this crap of my life and this selfishness. And so I say, yes, dig that stuff out, Lord, because this is where the deep calls unto deep. This is where the depth of who you are is digging deeper into me. So have your way, Lord. I surrender all. Teach us, Lord, teach us this way, your way, this way of abundance, this way of Jesus, you're enough. Forget my dissatisfaction. I choose satisfaction in you and in you alone. I'm going to ask the 